the currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Good evening and welcome to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. Over the next hour, we'll review the current international economic, business and geopolitical issues that impact markets at home and abroad. If you want to contact the show, you can do so by emailing thecurrency at newstalk.ie or tweet us at thecurrencynt. Coming up on the show, we have our panel in studio to discuss the banking issues that are affecting both entrepreneurs and mortgage holders alike. Anthony Limbrick will cast an eye over volatile markets and give his insight into the NTMA bond auction and euro credit. A senior researcher at European think tank Bruegel outlines the deflationary threat looming over the eurozone. But before all of that, we turn to the UK, where the OFT, the Office of Fair Trading, is currently in the process of deciding whether an investigation into banking services for small and medium enterprises is necessary. If the OFT decides to pursue investigation, Irish banks, AIB and Bank of Ireland could be in the firing line. Joining me now is Charlie Taylor, business journalist with the Irish Times, who's recently written about it. Uh, Why has the UK Office of Fair Trading threatened investigation in the first place, Charlie? Well, that's a good question. I mean, essentially, the OFT, they they announced they were going to carry out a review last June, and this is their latest update in regards to the uh, review. And basically, they're saying that there's, there's a suggestion there's a hint that, you know, a number of banks, including AIB and Bank of Ireland and the usual sort of uh, high street banks that we used to see in Britain, such as Barclays and Lloyds, uh, that they may be making it difficult for small companies to access finance. And do you think uh, AIB and Bank of Ireland are, are including the group just as a, as, a, as a general group of SME lenders or are there specific issues surrounding those banks and their lending practices? They've been named, I mean, the review is covering, I think, nine banks altogether. And with regard to AIB and Bank of Ireland, it's to do with their banking practices in the north. And the OFT in their update, they announced that um, there's four providers of services to small firms accounting for over 90% of uh, banking services for small firms in Northern Ireland. So obviously AIB and Bank of Ireland, and then we've also got RBS with Ulster Bank and also Danske Bank with Northern, with the former Northern Bank, uh, you know, who, who are pretty much running the show there, really, from what the OFT is saying. And if the investigation goes ahead, presumably it's about uh, competitive issues and whether SMEs have actually been receiving um, a, a fair deal from the banks concerned. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, essentially, I mean, what the review says so far, you know, and they're, and they're holding off judgment at the moment until July. That's when this review is supposed to be rounded up and a decision will be taken then as to whether there'll be a full investigation. But basically, it's saying at the moment, it's saying, you know, that small firms are finding it very difficult to get access to, to funding, that um, if they do want to get access to loans, they're usually forced into a sort of bundling arrangement, as they call it, which is where they, are, they have to open an account with the bank in order to get the loan. And they're also saying that there's... Um, very little uh, opportunities for smaller providers to enter the market because of barriers to entry. 
And if the if the investigation goes ahead, do you think uh, regulators here in uh, in Ireland will be moved to make uh, similar investigations? I think, um, from my reading of it so far, it seems to be that it will be kept very much a separate issue. I mean, obviously, there's been an issue with the banks here. It's been very much prominent in the news over the last week or so with, with the comments from Morgan Kelly and then also the ISME survey coming out suggesting that there's been a, a rise in the refusal for small firms uh, seeking uh, finance from the banks. You know, but it, it seems very much like it will be kept as a separate investigation. And that it that it solely affects the banking situation in the north and in Britain. Charlie Taylor, business journalist with the Irish Times, thanks very much for joining us this evening. Now it's time for our panel to take the hot seat and discuss some of the burning issues in Irish lending. Columnist with the Sunday Business Post and former banker Michael Murray, and economist with the ESRI Conroe Tool, you're both very welcome to the currency. We'll get to mortgage write-offs and the ESRI report into European SME lending in just a minute. But first, following on from Charlie Taylor's report on a possible investigation into Irish banks, uh, do you think this is just a UK issue or should the Irish regulator hold a similar investigation? Well, I think the barriers to entry uh, in both countries are, are very similar uh, in, in terms of SMEs because the reality is that most SMEs will have uh, their assets uh, charged uh, in favour of their existing bank. Uh, and, of course, it's very difficult to move in uh, on a subordinated basis. It's very difficult to move in uh, and take no security. And uh, the security may not be available. The second difficulty is in relation to the current account, which gives the incumbent bank uh, a, a very strong market position. So I think where there is more scope for competition and more scope for breaking into uh, SMEs is on specific asset financing with charges over specific assets, be they hotels or property uh, or, or plant and equipment through 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 leasing or indeed uh, f- factoring of receivables. Uh, but I think it would be wrong to say that in normal circumstances there hasn't been competition in the banking sector. I think the competition uh, has been extremely intense in both Britain and Ireland up to recent times. And of course, the reduction in the intensity of competition in recent times has to do with uh, tighter capital uh, availability for banks uh, and also uh, to do with uh, banks retrenching into their home bases. And Connor, do you do you feel that uh, AIB and Bank of Ireland have a case to answer here, or is it, uh, or is it more a question of uh, uh, the situation they're in? with regard to their balance sheets? I think this is a very timely piece um, coming out of the UK because in Ireland we have a position whereby we have less competition in the bank sector relative to the UK and Northern Ireland. For your average SME in Ireland, they're basically using three banks. There's Bank of Ireland, there's AIB and there's Ulster Bank. That competition has significantly lessened since the onset of the financial crisis with the market exit of the, fan, the foreign banks, Bank of Scotland Ireland, uh, Danske Bank. And this certainly, in my view, looks as if it's, it's, there would be a case for extra research in this area in Ireland to establish the degree to which competitive processes are working or not working between the main financial institutions and providers of finance for SMEs.
With regard to um, the north of Ireland, it seems that AIB and Bank of Ireland uh, are most involved with SMEs there. Are you aware of the scale of the, the, the sort of lendings that they had in, in, uh, in the north or not? Well, uh, AIB has a very substantial operation in Northern Ireland because, as you'll recall, they took over First Trust Bank uh, a number of years ago. Uh, or rather the TSB and then the, called the combination the First Trust Bank. Uh, so they have a, a, a strong uh, market position. The economy, of course, in Northern Ireland is quite weak and uh, was quite weak even before the uh, current crisis. But certainly AIB and Bank of Ireland see it uh, as a core market f- for them. And in many situations, probably much more as a proportion of the total, a far larger proportion of SMEs uh, have their main account with AIB and Bank of Ireland. And so they're incumbents in Northern Ireland, whereas they're not actually incumbents in Britain taking security on non-core assets when they, uh, when they lend to SMEs in, in, the U- in, in mainland UK. The uh, AIB and Bank of Ireland's uh, issues here in, in the Republic are well known. Has that actually impacted, do you think, the, the provision of SME lending in the north? Well, that's a very interesting question because A&B and Bank of Ireland have had considerable state investment to bolster their capital position down south. And one of the very interesting questions from a research perspective is we don't really know whether they have differentiated lending practices both south and north and whether the degree of credit rationing or the degree of credit constraints are higher or lower for those particular lenders in in the north and south and it's actually a very interesting uh, piece of work that that should be done and um, understanding whether there's differentiated lending activities okay connor uh, i'm going to stop you there as we have to go to a break but coming up we'll hear details of uh, the esri report into sme lending and following an unprecedented mortgage write-off we'll consider the options for mortgage holders in arrears stay tuned the currency with nick bullman Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. Before the break, our panellists, Conor O'Toole, economist with the ESRI, and Michael Murray, columnist with the Sunday Business Post and former banker, were discussing SME lending, or rather the lack thereof. Now, Conor, the ESRI uh, published a report this week entitled, Does Market Power Affect SME Financing Constraints? What was the report's main objectives? The main objectives of this particular report, which was published in an international journal and which is co-authored by uh, Dr. Robert Ryan from Trinity and and Dr. Fergal McCann from the Central Bank, was to look at whether if bank market power or the sort of degree of competition in the banking sector changes, what are the impacts then on access to finance for small to medium-sized enterprises? So this particular research um, was undertaken across 20 European countries. We looked at approximately 120 uh, firms in, in, in that particular piece of research. And what we basically found was that as competition lessens in the banking sector, the financing constraints faced by small to medium enterprises increase. And that dynamic was actually stronger in countries which are much more bank dependent. And Ireland would be a particular case that of, of having a high degree of dependence on banks for their external financial mix. The interesting point from this research is that it's very timely. Um, There's been a 
significant retrenchment on a European-wide basis towards home financial markets following the financial crisis. Many European governments have had to undertake considerable recapitalizations of their banking systems. This has led to a sort of restructuring across Europe of how uh, banks compete. And within that context... The Irish situation is very, very interesting because we've moved from a position of having a number of, of, of financing providers for SMEs to one where we basically have two pillar banks, AAB and Bank of Ireland, and Ulster Bank also committing to, to remain in the market. That structural change heightens the risks that in a medium-term perspective when the Irish economy recovers, that credit constraints for SMEs may um, take upwards relative to, to where they, they would be in a more competitive financial market. Last week we had uh, we, were, we were lucky to have Professor of Finance Brian Lucy on the show. Um, we were discussing the lack of competition in the banking sector and, and he said that AIB and Bank of Ireland uh, are essentially mortgage banks um, and in a sense it's therefore wrong to expect them to lend to SMEs in the current environment. I mean, is the answer a foreign bank specialising in SME loans? And if so, why aren't they already here? Well, that's, that's a very, very interesting point. I think ideally we would have a new specialised SME lender would enter the Irish market and compete considerably for all different types of financial instruments, both across working capital financing, working capital for exporting and uh, expansion or business investment loans. However, I think there are a number of major sort of structural issues in the banking sector that may deter an entrance. Now, they may not necessarily be sort of regulatory-based. The majority could be just poor profitability for a bank coming in. The returns for their investment here in Ireland may not be there. So we need to think of a sort of a broader, wider policy mix. And this is uh, sort of important in the context of the government's medium-term economic strategy, which calls for a widening and deepening of the financing landscape for SMEs. Now, what in practice that would entail is trying to develop alternative liquid financing sources for SMEs that they could complement their bank financing with. That would be new risk uh, capital, that would be new alternative working capital type facilities for exporters, that would be a range of products which would draw on non-bank financing elements and could complement the bank financing piece in the firm's mix. Michael, as a, as a former banker, I mean, do you think that, that it's really due down to a lack of competition in the banking sector or, or uh, just a breakage, for example, in the credit transition mechanism? I mean, is it the fact that the banks are broken or is it competition? Uh, it's a bit of both now uh, because clearly the banks are broken and to the extent that they have capital to lend, they'll always go for the, the softer, easier, safer option uh, if they can generate decent returns on capital from that. In terms of setting up a separate SME bank, we did actually have uh, a specialist SME bank in, in Ireland at one time. It was ICC, the Industrial Credit Corporation, which was taken over by the Bank of Scotland. And of course, the Bank of Scotland has now disappeared from the Irish market. Uh, so, the government is going to have to look very carefully at the uh, policy options on this. Uh, it may have to, for example, uh, introduce some tax incentives for SME lending uh, and it may have to give the IDA a mandate to try and encourage uh, more foreign direct investment in, in this area to stimulate competition. Uh, but I think as the banks repair themselves uh, the situation will ease somewhat but in a way it's a chicken and egg situation because uh, we have to get the economy kick-started and um, SMEs have to play their part in that. And of course that that's the nub of the problem and if you look at 
hit uh, Japan prior to their 20-year deflationary period, they faced a, a similar SME credit issue, but their problem was, was zombie banks or so-called zombie banks who were kept alive but were effectively unable to function. I mean, is that the same issue here in Europe, do you think? I don't think it is to the same extent. And I think that uh, as time has gone on and uh, with the asset quality review and so on uh, coming, uh, the banks are being forced up, forced to own up to the embedded bad debts that, uh, that they may not yet have owned up to. Uh, I think when that is done, uh, we'll have a, a clearer picture uh, going forward and know the amount of capital that's going to be required uh, in order to, to resolve this problem. And probably as well, uh, there will have to be a, a focus on whether or not uh, the uh, banks are forced to sell off their remaining overseas operations. Uh, Michael makes a very good point regarding the asset quality review or the AQR, which is coming up. Um, Connor, to what extent did your report uh, consider the AQR and the fact that uh, banks are being sort of somewhat disincentivized to, 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 to make loans at the moment because the AQR is coming up and they want to keep their capital uh, as intact as possible prior to it. While that wasn't a particular focus of this piece of research that we've done, I guess that it does raise a number of questions for what type of financing is required for SMEs and how the banking sector can play its role in, in transmitting that. I know that the changes in the regulatory requirements following the Basel reviews for SME loans increases the risk weights on capital for, for SMEs and that is also a deterrent for, for the share of SME loans that banks hold on their books. One key issue that certainly the, the ECB is looking into in this context is to try and develop a liquid securitization market on a European-wide basis for uh, small to medium-sized enterprise loans. And that's an important development. I certainly think it may not be the case that that market can be built in Ireland specifically, but if there's a European-wide market for those sort of asset-backed SME loans uh, tranches, then Ireland, Irish banks can, can tip into that market, but it's probably best developed on a European-wide basis with sort of uh, funds from the European Investment Bank and the European Investment Fund providing cornerstone investment in, the, in that particular uh, And that sort of feeds into what I've called the uh, the deal of the century for uh, EU zone banks, which is essentially buying uh, sovereign debt of their host nation, depositing that as collateral with the ECB, being able to borrow against that collateral at very low rates, half a percent, for example, and that's called a carry trade, and um, they can make, uh, you know, four percent or, or, or whatever, depending on on the rate, um, very easily, which helps repair their balance sheet. Given that, what incentive do they have to lend to SMEs because um, they have this this incredible carry trade uh, going on at the moment? Well, I think that's an um, important point. I think the, the returns to SMEs are a lot riskier. Um, the average Irish SME, the current interest rates are, are, are reasonably uh, coverable. I think that going forward, that's an unsustainable position. That's something that the ECB will be looking to, to wean off its balance sheet and wean the dependence on its balance sheet. So I think that going forward, we really need to ask what type of financing landscape we require in Ireland to transmit the credit to SMEs in a recovery scenario. And I think that 
one of the, the, the cornerstones of that is to try and increase competition in the banking sector. Certainly the, the government has been very active in this particular space and a number of policy initiatives have been announced. And the work that the NPRF do, has done in introducing new funding schemes such as the Turnaround Fund and the Better Capital Scheme and introducing new players such as Silicon Valley Bank into the market mix in Ireland is a welcome development. And the, the, the transformation of the fund into the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund and the new schemes that it will introduce is also a welcome development and should should be bolstered in the context of SME financial provision. And Michael, having having worked within the banks, what sort of policy options do you think would uh, would combat that banking contraction and, and aid uh, lending towards SMEs at the moment within within the Irish context? Well, I think that, uh, as, as I said earlier, uh, if the banks reduced the extent of their overseas exposure even further, it would release uh, capital uh, for uh, more SME lending. Uh, but uh, when you talk to uh, people in the main banks, they say that the, that the actual demand from, from SMEs in the past few years hasn't actually been, been there uh, and the opportunities haven't been there. The question is, now that the economy is recovering, are the banks responding to what presumably is an increase in demand in certainly in the last six, six to nine months? And uh, it remains to be seen as to, whether, as to whether or not they are. But there is another aspect also, which is that in addition to the carry trade benefits that you, you were referring to, the banks going forward will have tax-free earnings on their, on their, uh, on their profits uh, for quite some time to come because they'll have the losses carried forward from the financial crisis. Uh, so that uh, should help them build up their capital bases. Uh, hopefully, uh, as the bad debt uh, scene uh, improves, they should be in a position to raise new equity from the markets. Well, we'll have to leave uh, SMEs there, but it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Um, Moving on to mortgage write-offs, during the week, the Irish Independent uh, reported that a Dublin family received 150,000 mortgage write-off from AIB. In what is, uh, I believe, the biggest residential mortgage write-off to date, Um, yesterday the Irish Times reported that figure was in fact 170,000, leaving the family with a €130,000 mortgage on a property valued at about 100000 So, Connor, looking at the deal uh, AIB has made, it, it looks more like a debt restructure than a debt write-off. So th- is this just a clever way for the bank to, uh, to keep skin in the game, as it were? And do you think it's going to be the template for the 96,000 other mortgage customers in arrears um, who are in arrears for over three months? Well, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the recent central bank statistics indicate there's 110 billion euros worth of outstanding mortgage credit in Ireland, of which nearly 18% of those are in arrears. And of those arrears, 12% of, of, of all mortgages are in arrears of, of over 90 days. So a solution must be found to this problem. It's, it's, it's a key issue in the, in the, in, for the Irish economy. Um, the central bank also published last year the mortgage arrears resolution targets, what that kind of outlined was that the banks must be very active on this particular issue. They must deal with every case on a case-by-case basis and ensure that, it, if possible, a, a sustainable arrangement can be, can be provided. And I think in this particular case, with this context, as it's very difficult to take one case and to generalise up to, to, to policy measures. But I think that this, if a particular case like this provides sustainability to the family, 
provides sustainability in the repayment of the debt, which is also a key issue, then this is a welcome development. And I think this, is, this certainly should be part of the policy options that are used. And these type of arrangements should be included in the mix if if they are the best situation for both the, the householder and, and the financial institution involved. Of course, the, the other side of that, uh, that coin is the bank itself and the bank's shareholders. And uh, whilst uh, banks aren't always the most popular in society, um, they, they have responsibilities to their own shareholders. So, so what sort of a hit is being taken on the balance sheets of the banks if they if they start to introduce these measures? Well, within the recapitalization program following the financial crisis, the Irish banks were capitalized to be able to take losses such as this and to deal with these particular issues. So I think that moving on these issues and actually putting restructuring in place is more important than just leaving these zombie losses on the bank's balance sheet. So I think an active approach to trying to deal with these particular mortgages is, is required and must be, must be taken going forward from the financial institutions. And that, again, has becoming, reducing the level of bad debts on the bank's books in time will provide a, a sort of financially sustainable uh, return for the shareholders if the banks can return to profitability and undertake the lending to SMEs and households that we were discussing earlier. And how does uh, introducing new competition in the mortgage market, which which you know still uh, looks looks quite flooded at the moment, actually change things in Ireland from a from a perspective of uh, of, uh, of competition? Well, I, I think there's really two issues here. One is the arrears and the legacy arrears from the financial crisis. That's a separate issue that has to be dealt with, with a a very engaged policy uh, response. Then there's the issue of the long-term competition in the banking sector, once the arrears uh, issue, certainly for the mortgage side, is dealt with. So to me, there's a longer-term perspective, a medium-term perspective to think about, do we have a financial system with competitive banking sector, which will be competing in the banks themselves to introduce innovative new products, to reduce interest and non-interest costs, to really provide new types of financing instruments for both households and firms. And that is separate to me than the issue of arrears, which is a stock of bad debts which has to be dealt with. And certainly sustainable uh, solutions for families like the one we see here should be a welcome part of that mix. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for with our panel. I I want to thank columnist uh, with the Sunday Business Post and former banker Michael Murray, an economist with the ESRI Conor O'Toole, for coming into the studio tonight and giving us a lot of food for thought. Coming up after the break, Eurozone deflation and markets go risk off. The Currency with Nick Bullman, brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services, protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. If you'd like to get in touch with the show with comments, questions or insight you'd like to share, then please do email thecurrency at newstalk.ie or tweet at thecurrencynt. Now, European economists are gravely concerned that the lack of ECB quantitative easing is exposing the Eurozone to a strong deflationary downdraft. Much of the EU is already experiencing deflation, and without immediate action, the Eurozone could be facing into a Japan-style deflationary trap. So why is the ECB so slow to react? Well, joining me on the line is senior researcher at European think tank Bruegel, Zolt Dervas. Salt, why does the ECB appear so complacent to the obvious deflationary threat? The main reason is that they are looking at inflationary expectations 
and these expectations do not suggest a threat of deflation. What they show is that in the longer term, in about five years from now, inflation is expected to return to 2% and the ECB is headed it down. But of course, that was very similar to uh, what the Bank of Japan saw prior to their deflationary trap. And the second round effects of going into deflation are much harder to deal with than the the, the initial effects. So should the ECB not be acting now? I think the ECB should act right now indeed, because we have a special problem in the euro area that inflation was much faster in the periphery than in the core before the crisis. And now this has to reverse. So even if there is no deflation, but uh, inflation is at a low level of about 1%, this will imply a zero inflation or, or even deflation in the euro periphery. And since uh, companies, households, and also the government are heavily indebted there, it will make uh, these countries much more difficult to, f- to sustain their debt. So I think the ECB, ECB should do whatever it takes to push inflation to the 2% threshold as soon as possible. Now, uh, on that subject, the, the German Constitutional Court recently ruled against the ECB's uh, outright monetary policy transactions. Um, it, it sent those up to the European Court for, for review. Do you think Germany's actually tying the ECB in knots? I mean, is it stopping them from, from actually acting? I think there are major differences of opinion uh, between members of the governing council, which mostly composed of governors of the of the national central banks, including Germany and other countries. Uh, and indeed, I think this uh, divergence of opinion within the council is also a major reason why the ECB, at the end of the day, is not able to decide uh, on any more aggressive monetary policy measures. So what needs to happen in Brussels uh, to break the spiral? I mean, is it, a, is it a political solution or is it a question of the ECB uh, uh, acting unilaterally and, and doing it of its own accord? Now, I think that uh, politicians in the euro area are very much respect, respecting the independence of the central bank. So, I mean, Ms. Merkel or Mr. Hollande or, or Mr. Barroso, I think, will not give any instruction uh, to the ECB. Now, what should happen, I think, or what will happen, uh, if it's better to say that way, is that if inflation will stay at a low level or would even decline further, then the pressure for doing something um, will be certainly much more significant uh, also, the euro exchange rate is uh, somewhat stronger now than it was before. And even President Draghi indicated that they are also watching the exchange rate because it also has a major implication for the transmission of monetary policy to the real economy. So I think if you will see a number of additional quarters, then inflation will remain low. Then there will be a probability that the ECB will act even though there are differences within the governing council. And with regard to, uh, we're obviously very close to to what's known as the zero interest rate bound, where monetary policy becomes much less effective. What can the ECB actually do, uh, and do they still have time? Yes, I mean, the main refinancing rate of the ECB is 0.25%, very low, if they would cut it a little bit further, that would not make any big difference. Basically, there are three things that the ECB could do. 
One is uh, reducing the deposit rates below zero because banks post deposits at the ECB. Uh, currently, they get zero interest on, on that. Uh, the ECB would make them pay, thereby reducing the rate below zero. Uh, for example, the Central Bank of Denmark currently still uh, has uh, negative deposit rates, so that's one option. The second option is a, is a new round of liquidity provision, like the long-term refinancing operations, uh, which can be made, for example, conditional on lending to the economy, uh, like the UK funding for lending scheme. And the third option is quantitative easing, which can uh, take uh, different forms. So the ECB could purchase government bonds. That would be, I think, controversial, including in Germany. But the ECB could also purchase uh, uh, corporate securities, uh, which be, I think, less controversial and may, and may also help to revive uh, the corporate debt markets in, in Europe. So I think a combination of these three measures uh, could be could, uh, justified. Now, it needs to be seen, as I said, how serious the situation will be in the coming quarters. And um, ECB will only act if, if things will get worse. With 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 German inflation close to zero uh, percent, uh, the debt-stricken states in Europe have to go deeper into f- deflation just to remain competitive. I mean, effectively, uh, this is what you were saying earlier. But but does that mean that Germany is exporting deflation to the rest of Europe? And and how do Germans in general feel about that? I mean, German inflation is somewhat over one percent, but uh, so not zero, but still significantly below the 2% threshold. And even, as I said, the euro area should be at 2%, implying that in Germany it has to be more, it has to be even 3%. Now, um, I think politicians uh, and even the, the central bank governor recognize that, that this intra-euro adjustment is indeed uh, an important uh, factor for making the recovery in the eurozone more robust. Uh, but the problem is that is that uh, uh, Germany financing conditions of corporates is very favorable. For example, the lending rates to corporates uh, are typically quite low. There is also a lot of liquidity uh, in, in Germany. Uh, um, and therefore, people, including central bank uh, economists, believe that a further monetary stimulus could not really help to support the German demand, uh, German investment and consumption demand, because interest rates are already very low in Germany. Now, what I think is that the quantitative easing would, first of all, would, would give a signal that the ECB is indeed determined uh, to push inflation back to 2%, and thereby it could affect expectations, and we know that expectations are also very important. And also, a more aggressive policy from the European Central Bank uh, would depreciate the exchange rate of the euro, thereby it would help uh, export sectors, uh, for example, German exporters would do even better. That would mean increases in German wages in, in the exporting industries, and that could lead to higher inflation also in, in Germany. So I think, uh, yes, there is some resistance from the German population over uh, higher inflation, but uh, they are members of the EU area, and the EU area target is 2%. So this 2% has to be reached and has to be accepted by all citizens of the EU area. 
Salt Devis, Senior Researcher at European Think Tank Bruegel. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. Coming up, a markets overview with a focus on volatility and risk. Stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency. If you'd like to hear podcasts of today's show or previous shows, just log on to newstalk.ie forward slash the currency or download the Newstalk app. Now, equity markets fell very sharply last week all around the world. So we now consider what is causing this risk-off environment and the prospects for increased volatility going forward. Joining me on the line is Anthony Limbrick. Principal and Portfolio Manager at 36 South Capital Advisors, a volatility and tail risk specialist. Anthony, what is the market reacting to and and why has it suddenly gone risk off? Well, I think the market has been complacent for some time, the last few months. A few injections of a little bit of stress into the markets, but nothing substantial. But the Ukraine situation really does raise a prospect of something quite significant geopolitically. So uh, a complacent market, slightly overlong. Um, that's why we're seeing the pressure. It's interesting to note that uh, the three-and-a-half-year uptrend on the DAX in Germany actually broke its uptrend this, uh, this last uh, week or so. So... Um, that does imply potentially that some of these euro assets actually could be a little weaker over the next uh, couple of months. Well, with the the Ukraine, obviously that's that's a very big factor unnerving the markets. Um, Putin has probably two choices, I, I suspect. One is to move quickly to annex Crimea and uh, take risk sanctions, or take. Uh, a more legalistic approach and avoid sanctions altogether. What do you think uh, markets would like to see happen? And um, given that the annexation looks uh, looks increasingly likely, um, what do you see the, the prospects for markets in the next week or so? I think markets are possibly comfortable with an annexation of Crimea. I think everyone sees Crimea as key to um, Russia's long-term geopolitical survival. So from that perspective, markets could cope with that. However, eastern Ukraine is a different one, and I think that that would mark an escalation. I don't think personally that he will go into eastern Ukraine, but, uh, you know, what do I know? Um, But Crimea, I think um, markets can cope with that. Uh, And I I don't think that... uh, the West will, um, I mean, they will press sanctions, etc. if Crimea is annexed, but I, I don't think that uh, it will go beyond that. Moving on uh, to other parts of the world, uh, we've seen interbank rates and credit spreads widening in China. Uh, they've had their first domestic corporate bond defaults, uh, which is sort of indicative that they, they, they won't allow moral hazard um, for domestic uh, for domestic bond, for domestic companies that have uh, bond problems. Um how critical do you think things are in China and Asian markets at the moment? And what sort of impact can we expect uh, elsewhere from that? Okay, well, we've had a, a long-running view that China is, in fact, a bubble that's um, unwinding. Um, there's more of an awareness globally that that is the case now. But we believe that, uh, you know, this effort to bring um, some honesty back into the markets is possibly uh, too late and in fact may exacerbate the problems in China. I don't think they understand how much damage they can do and the, you know, the collateral damage as a result of that. Um, we do believe China over the next year or so could be subject to some sort of large move to the downside in equity markets. Uh, and with the break weaker in the renminbi, um, we can see uh, the renminbi also um, 
going substantially weaker. I think it's the intention of the Bank of China to actually weaken it. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if we take uh, the public announcements by the Bank of China at face value. Um, the fact is, uh, if you look at the renminbi over the last three years, it's rallied about 30% against the emerging market currency basket, which makes uh, China very uncompetitive. And it really, uh, China does need a devaluation, especially if uh, we see um, further weakness in the economy. Global volatility, both in equity and bond markets, has been uh, artificially suppressed in many ways uh, since 2008. We've seen... Uh, certainly equity market volatility spike over the last few days. Um, what's going on with volatility and, and where does it go from here? It's quite clear to us that the levels of volatility we're seeing at the moment, or just prior to the, the events of the last week or so, um, it has been low. Not as low as it was back in 2006, but essentially the premium that people are being paid for taking on the risk of volatility and risk in other markets as well is to too low. Um, and that does represent a complacency. So uh, we're starting to see volatility pick up now. Um, if you look at the VIX as a proxy, that's the US um, volatility index. Um, if that were to take out the 25 to 30 band, and it's below that at the moment, if it were to take that out, then we would expect quite substantial short covering and volatility positions in the USA. Um, that's not to say it's going to go there, but if it does, um, that's a very nasty technical development for that market, which could bring substantial volatility in. Um, so we, we are watching that. There's been a lot of selling of volatility across a range of assets globally over the last three years. And, uh, you know, we tend to drive uh, looking in the rear view mirror, not thinking about what can happen next. And uh, from that perspective, I think there is quite a lot of complacency. Yes. And I think as a diversifier, uh, volatility is one of the few negatively, really negatively correlated assets to uh, to most other assets. That's correct, isn't That's it? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, back in Ireland, um, the NTMA had the first bond auction uh, in, in four years. Uh, they were able to raise uh, about a billion euro uh, in a 10-year treasury bond at what looks like an excellent rate. And I think the um, institutional take-up was uh, uh, more than three times subscribed. Uh, what are your views on euro credit at the moment? Are, are we seeing any sort of positive attributes uh, on euro credit in general? Well, I think the key thing here is that uh, the euro has broken up out of a multi-year consolidation. So the euro actually looks very strong, technically. Um, it's not a uh, consensus trade that the euro should go higher. In fact, probably the consensus would be a, it would still be vulnerable to weakness. Um, this break higher is going to be good for those people holding euro credit. So, and, I, and I, I'm saying government credit here. So, government credit we believe will continue to be very well supported as a result of strength in the euro. Um, and in fact, the euro we could see as high as. 1.5 US dollars or maybe even 1.6. So um, quite substantial moves higher from this point. Anthony Limbrick, Principal and Portfolio Manager at 36 South Capital Advisors. Thanks very much for that insight on equity markets and volatility uh, this evening. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. My thanks to producer Aoife Gillivan and Paddy Donahue on sound. I'll be back next Sunday evening at 6pm. Until then, farewell and take care. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years.